Hi, and welcome back to another edition of the Fundraisers Podcast, where we bring you the voice and the wisdom from all the best fundraisers that we can find from around the world. Uh, today, I've got Michelle Lee here today, who's one of the amazing fundraisers in the market, works at a placement agent called Capstone. Thank you very much, Michelle, for coming down, right? Thanks for having me here. Yeah. You know, we, we met like, uh, was it like once or one or two months ago, yeah. right? And uh, we met at Dimbala. We had a very interesting conversation. And one of the things that I think triggered me into wanting to invite you in, into the podcast is because of your profound wisdom, if I can put it this way, right? In how you very eloquently articulated the definition of a good salesperson and the sales process as well, particularly when it comes to fundraising, because you've seen fund managers pitch to you. You've, you've also been on the other side mm -hmm. pitching to investors. There was one point, though, where you spoke about a biblical verse. And I know you're very you're very holy. You, you, you go to church a lot and, and it's sort of shaped who you are as a person. And the verse went something along the lines of, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I remember you saying something about that. Would you mind just sharing with everyone, you know, how that has shaped who you are as, sure. as, a, as a fundraiser, perhaps? Yeah. So I think people tend to think that good fundraisers um, have got to tell a good story. I think that's mm. probably important. You do need to tell great stories, but I think fundamental to it is also listening out for the needs of the LP. You know, when you speak to someone, you want to know what that person needs before you propose a solution to it. So I think what is most important to me really is to listen, to understand first before I speak, before I come to a conclusion or before I propose a solution to it. And sometimes it can mean that there are no immediate solution. You know, LP could be telling you, oh, this is what I need and I, I don't have a product for that, but that's fine because you can keep in mind, thank you for your time. Mm. A few months later, you could come back and close that deal because you now have a product that the LP would have a need for. So um, I guess that's pretty much how I go about doing my work so in you've general. you've practiced that, right? Yeah. Is this something that, you know, that you've been taught at an early age as well, like to always be patient, listen first? Has it, has it been part of your values as well? Yes, for sure. I mean, it's true that the Bible verse has influenced me a lot. It's also true that through my growing up years, I spent a lot of time, even after, you know, after I came out to work, I spent a lot of time with youths. I did quite a bit of youth work in church. And I think what is important is youths, teenagers, they want to be understood. They want to know that someone is listening, you know. Everyone's telling them what you should do, what you should not do. And sometimes it doesn't get through to them, but that's probably because they want to be understood first. So I think that sort of work sort of spilled over into my life and I realised that everyone wants to be understood first, I think, yeah. It is. God gave you two ears and one <laughs> mouth, right? Yes, so, so true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and, and my mum always used to say that empty vessels make the most <laughs> noise. <laughs> yeah. Actually, my dad says that as well. Um, just that, you know, when he said it, he had a sinister meaning behind oh, it, right? right? <laughs> so it makes me think twice. But over time, as I, as I grew up, I think it's not so bad mm. an idea after all. Because it is true. If you sit in a room and you listen, there are always smart people around. There are always people with great ideas. You you know, rarely are we the only ones, right? Yes. So so I think it, it makes sense, yeah, to listen. Yeah. Yes. So have you had any complaints from LPs in the past where they say that, well, we have these fund managers that come in and just sort of push, push, push 
without actually really listening? I mean, has there been any sort of strong validation that you've mm. had over the years from your LPs? I think LPs are very cordial. They because they never know when their IC <laughs> are going to tell them, okay, we're going to switch strategy and focus on something else. So they are very cordial. But one of the signs that could tell you that you are not you know, pitching something they want is when they say, hmm, we'll think about it. That was really interesting. Thank you for your time. Um, and then when you ask them, do you need um, more information? We'll come back to you if we need. Right, that sounds terrible. But then, um, I mean, they do want to be cordial because um, you never know. Six months, two years down the road, they could be looking at a similar strategy. But it's just that at that point, um, they didn't think that this was a product that was right for them. But nowadays, I would say that LPs are also more conscious of fund managers' time. So they... You know, if they feel that um, if they have some initial information and they feel that this is not right for them, sometimes they, they don't agree to a introductory meeting, right? So I think that's good as well. Yeah. But you must go on pitches with the fund managers as well, right? Yes. When you when you go there, and and do you provide that that counsel to them as well? That you know this is how you need to be, and yes. So we pre-qualify most LP meetings, mm. meaning that I I would have one or more chats with the LPs before I believe that the GP can make a difference because typically we speak to the LP about the sort of funds they are seeing, what kind of funds would interest them and along the way if there is some common ground, there's some interest and then I would suggest why not speak to this GP, you know, that's fundraising. This GP is interesting, seems to meet most of your requirements and is in a space that you want and I would have some information for the GP as well. I'll be able to tell them that oh um, the LP has just gone through, you know, maybe a portfolio review. They now want to beef up their portfolio with additional funds that are within this strategy. So, so those are um, value add that intermediaries like us can can bring to the table. So it helps the LPs sort out. I mean, I I save it through, right? I don't just throw everyone at them. And then I help the GP to also save out those with real interest so that they don't spend their time meeting someone who, you know, roll their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you qualify a GP then? What, what, are the, what are the things that you look for? So for G GPs, I would say that I look for three Ts. Three Ts refer to the team. It has to be a team that works together, works well, complementary in terms of their strengths and weaknesses. I will look at their track record. Obviously, um, they need to you know, show some form of track record as a team that they have executed their strategy, they did well. And last of all, I think it's really timeliness. Timeliness is um, the most difficult factor. It's not directly tied to the GP, but it's more of whether this strategy is the right strategy in this moment, you know, at this point in the market. So that's something that intermediaries like us have to go figure out. We, we probably have to do a lot of ground survey, talk to people, um, reach out to LPs, just to know, like, is this sort of strategy going to take off? Of course, we rely a lot on LP surveys. We re rely on data. We look at certain trends as well. But one of the more important parts is to really talk to the LPs within my network to see whether there is interest for such a product. Yeah.
Interesting. Let's let's double click a little bit on team. Then we'll talk a little bit about the the track record, and then a little bit more about the the timing. Give me an example of like a team. Like, wh- how would you describe a great team? Like, what mm. are the, what are the things that you look for? Would you be looking for like the, the typical Ivy League kind of education, gone to big bulge bracket firms, or from an academic uh, experience perspective, or is there other things that yeah. you know make up? All of those are great, but the truth is when it comes to team, it's important to meet the key people in the team, the key people who um, who make investment decisions together. You can have great backgrounds. I'm not opposed to <laughs> a great team with you know Ivy League uh, credentials, but I would say that a team that is able to complement each other is pro- probably more important. So within the team, there are always risk takers. There are o- also people who are s- very conservative. I think it's important to have a balance of both um, you need someone who can point out you know the hundred things about this deal that can go wrong but you also need an optimist to see you know the silver lining and to pick that deal that is going to you know give you your 10 times return so I think all of those are important so therefore a team that's worked together for a few years is always important there are also GPS that we have met that have teams that are new to each other but I think what mitigated that team factor is also when they say that oh but I know this guy for the last 10 years even though we were in different firms but we worked together a lot on this project or that project and we have encountered each other in different transactions I think that also factors in so at the end of the day we are looking for a team of people to make decisions together good decisions because there are no good or bad deals, right? They're just good or bad decisions at the end of the day. So, yeah. Uh, would you say that the CIO, obviously the main sort of investment um, professional, and then perhaps a really strong COO that have known each other, worked together, are the two most mm. important um, people? Or would you would you say, actually, well, hang on a minute, it's not just the COO that's l- less, less important, it's more the investment team having mm. worked together? Yes. Um, so the yin and yang is less, but yes. maybe more the the alpha generation capability. And well, how would you? Well, which, yeah. which side would you would you balance that? Unfortunately, I think in most GPs, um, they they don't have a COO that could pull the stops on all the deals. Yeah. I think most of the time, the people who are sitting on the IC are actually investment professionals. Yeah. So I have to look at the the makeup of that IC, maybe um, the team, the investment team, in terms of their strengths. Some of them, they have a few key members who are really good at deal sourcing versus a team with just one guy deal sourcing, right? That's obviously a key man risk to it. So, yeah. Let's move on to then a track record. Over my years of experience, I've come across plenty of people who claim um, to have done, you know, more than 25, 30% IRR, mm. you know, 4X, 3X, you know, you hear all the, yes. those, those amazing um, track records. Um, how often do you come across people with amazing track records, perfect team, you know, the perfect time as well? <laughs> um, h- how often is that? I would say that most of the teams that we have decided to work with, they meet most of the criteria. Otherwise, we wouldn't be working with them. So there are there are great teams out there. I think in Southeast Asia, DPI is an issue. Uh, people have great four times, three times MOIC, but they rarely distribute money back to you know LPs. So we do have GPs we work with who are able to distribute money back, who are able to deliver. So the three times MOIC is realized. It's not unrealized uh, figure. So that, yeah, so there are. 
I mean, I would have to say that most of our clients meet <laughs> majority of the criteria, right? Yeah. If somebody has, because if you're good, you would have done some bad deals as well, right? What if somebody has had, I mean, obviously, do you look at the whole thing, right? Mm. So you would you would definitely be looking for the, the failures as well, right? And, mm. how, and how they look, is there any sort yeah. of specifics you look around that? Yes. Before we take on a GP, we do look at the track record. We do talk to them about the deals that they have in the portfolio. Obviously, we want to hear about, you know, what went wrong for the deals that didn't do well. So it's not so much whether they have bad deals, but it's also about how do they mitigate the less than stellar performance, right? So it's always easier for buyout funds to do something about it. But what if you are a growth or a VC fund, what do you do with that? So um, we have high quality GP that told us that, you know, when it comes to their strategy, they will look at a company, they will tend to estimate what sort of returns they can get from the company. And even before things go uh, badly or, you know, things go downhill, they actually try to exit from companies that they feel will not hit the sort of uh, expected return they want, which is maybe three to five times. So I think that that's a lot of forward uh, planning, which is really good. So um, if you actively manage your portfolio, yeah, to some extent, you could mitigate um, a lot of that. Let's move on to then the final T, which is timing. I remember watching a TED talk. I can't remember for the life of me what what it was called, but it was about most of the big successful startups in the world have all done it because of their timing was <laughs> impeccable, right? And and then in this in this TED talk, he was just going through like all the main things that contribute to success, and timing was the most critical out of everything. He said everything put it to one side. If your timing is good and everything else is kind of okay, you'll still make it. So it's really interesting that you brought it up. Can you give me like examples perhaps of things that you came to your desk, just bad timing? Plenty actually, <laughs> plenty. <laughs> if you have a great fund manager now based in Ukraine, that timing would be bad. Even if they were the most creative, they have 10 times return on most of their you know portfolio, timing is just bad because LPs are not going to take that risk. And we have also seen credit funds doing really well during the pandemic or Asian emerging markets manager struggling a little more, partly because things are unstable. LPs then want to look for larger markets, bigger markets. They want to look for a market that is deeper, you know, just so that they could manage part of the risk. There are great products out there, there are great fund managers, but sometimes uh, the timing of the market is also something that um, we can't control. And despite having met all the earlier T's, <laughs> the last part of it is something that honestly, even as placement agents, we, we don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> yeah. We can't tell the future. But when we look at a product and then we think about the current macro, we think there is a chance. Obviously, we, we take on mandates that we believe we can raise money for. So we take that on. But if things were to change rapidly, after that, you know, such as the war, such as inflation, such as pandemic, you know, all of this. I mean, I'm sure every fund manager that went into the market in early 2020 never expected, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic to last two years, two and a half years. Everyone 
thought that, you know, oh dear, this is unexpected, but it's likely to be like SARS, right? It'll yeah. be gone in the next few months. So, you know, let's just, um, you know, let's just push ourselves, keep moving, you know, things are going to get better. But it never happened. So I could say that, you know, timing is definitely, yeah. If you are in a market in a timely manner, I think that allows you to raise the money quickly. Yeah. Are there any tweaks you can do? Let's say part of your investment strategy is Russia or Ukraine or whatever. Is there anything that you can actually do to sort of say, okay, look, we've sanctioned that off or we're going to carry on but without it? Or if it was mm. an investor that you've brought on from Russia and it's a little bit sensitive, is that have you seen any fund managers sort of make mm. tweaks to their portfolio or their LPs to overcome this timing barrier? We have seen two GPs. Their mandate includes Myanmar. So Myanmar is, you know, also in a similar situation. There was a military coup recently and then, you know, things are not great. So um, what they have done is one of the GPs have decided not to focus on Myanmar as a key market. And then the other one has decided to ring fence their asset there. So there are different ways you can do to mitigate it. You can also allow LPs option to opt out of that particular investment. Yeah. Okay. So look, I, uh, we, we want to talk a little bit about your background as well. Mm-hmm. Like, look, so you came from Ministry of Health, right? Defense. Defense, sorry. <laughs> Ministry of Defense. Yes. And uh, moved over to UOB where you did a solid fundraising role at the GP side and then moved across. Love to know about that that whole career switch, right? How that happened. To add to all of that, my first job was in advertising sales. Wow. <laughs> I yes. graduated in the midst of an Asian financial crisis. After graduation, I was glad that my professor at the university remembered me and asked me if I would like to you know, interview for a Japanese uh, company. I did, I joined them. And I realized that I actually enjoy closing deals. I like doing the sales process. And then subsequent to that, I moved on to more communications role, which was why I joined the Ministry of Defense and then subsequently UOB. But um, when I got to UOB, um, it started off as a more communications role, but over time, um, there was also marketing, fundraising involved. And I realized I came a full circle, and I, I realized that, you know, if I could manage um, the fundraising, the pitching, and the sales process, I think I, I really like that sort of work, yeah. So based on your experience now, like, uh, you know, when you first started out doing fundraising to what you know now, obviously being a placement agent and you being extremely slick at what you do, there must have been some lessons that you've learned along mm. the way, right? What, what would you do differently? Basically meet yourself mm. all those years back. What, would you, what advice would you give Michelle um, all those years ago? I think I would have been more open to meet more prospective LPs because one of my colleagues says best time to to meet a GP is not when you have a fund to push, right? It's when you you don't have something to push and people are more open to meeting up. I think that is true. And the truth is also that when you go to the LPs when you have a fund that is launched, I think there is pressure on both ends. The LP to say yes or no, which comes quickly or sometimes not. <laughs> and then on our end, there's also this pressure to want to see a resolution to it, whether it's a no or, you know, yes, we'll progress and we'll do this. But when you meet LPs, prospective LPs, to talk about the firm, 
to talk about the fund management firm, the sort of uh, progress you have made in your current investments. I think um, that's important too. That's like building relationship, right? That's a lot like um, telling a prospective customer, hey, I have this. I don't have a product to sell now and you don't have a need for a fund like mine, but you know, let's just get to know each other a bit more. And one day, you know, um, the LP could change their strategy the LP could remember you, you know, when they meet someone or a friend who wants a product like yours. Yeah. But of course, um, this is what I'm doing right now as an intermediary. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's fine that GPs are not doing that. They can come to us. Yeah. We do that on their behalf. So I have coffee sessions. I, I speak to LPs. I um, talk to them about what they want, right? So the key point is not to push everything at them, but to remember that, okay, this is what you like and this is the sort of, you know, investment process or the sort of viewpoint you have right now. I keep that in mind and I, I bring the GP back another time, yeah. So I, I think if you are with a fund manager, I think a lot of other aspects of um, fundraising or investor relations could take up your time as well. So you may not be focusing on just having coffee, right? <laughs> Especially with um, LPs who are not going to invest in this fund or next fund or you, you don't have a sales to close. It's not likely that you're going to sit down and just have a casual chat that often. So I think that's something that um, GPs don't do a lot of and um, which is why there is a gap for us to fill. There is an obvious uh, value add that intermediaries like us can bring to the table. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the questions we get a lot from some of our listeners, there's quite a few aspiring fundraisers or mm. people who are hitting the pavement, right, quite early in their career, sort of like five, maybe le less than 10 years into it. What advice would you give them? I mean, because they get all sorts of different things. You know, sometimes people say to them, oh, you know, you should just you should just, you know, just go out and meet as many people as you can, cold mm. call the hell out of it and, um, you know, book as many meetings and then somebody more senior will say, then I'll come along and I'll close, right? And and they, they, they just feel like they're hitting a brick wall mm. and they don't, they don't feel like that they're really progressing. Mm. And sometimes when they go for interviews with other jobs, mm. then they're, they're okay, they're good salespeople, but they don't have any depth and they're really sort of, looking for a you know a platform that can give them that grooming and development of their profile mm. and i remember that one of the old um uh, one of the earlier guests um i should say not old guests but <laughs> earlier guests tamir dev who is with ask capital and he had a very he, he's very clear with everyone he's, he says it's all about being systematic mm -hmm. in your uh, LP search process, right? So where before you go to them, you need to really map it, map it out, right? So I wanted to know whether, you know, A, what advice would you give to these youngsters, right, who are trying to crack it, and B, like for Samir, it was all about LP positioning, right? Being able to map things out. Would you say that is also your key thing as well, being able to map it out, or what would, what would be your sort of advice around that? Yeah, it is similar to it. As I mentioned, I spend time with LPs trying to understand what they need, right? So all of us, I mean, we should have a good CRM system. <laughs> There's no way I could speak to a thousand people and remember what they like in general. But then with the CRM system, you can 
pull out, you know. And the good thing is um, I try to schedule a meeting every few months with the same LP so that I could touch on points that we wanted to talk about or we could revisit certain points that um, they had mentioned because six months ago they say that, oh, we're not looking at the private markets because, you know, our private market is now um, overweight in terms of uh, val value when compared to the public markets. But then that could change in six months' time. So, so to be honest, um, it's having all this information, but it's not going to be me remembering it. I can't do that. So you do have to jot down notes, be disciplined in filling up the CRM. Of course, the CRM is not your diary, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so there are things that you, you have to um, uh, minute down. I think meeting minutes, you need to um, do it. Not everyone likes doing it. I, I don't quite like doing it all the time, but sometimes it's necessary because you don't remember what you have said six months ago, let alone uh, you know what the LPS told you. So to some extent, yes. And before a meeting, I think it's always important to think about um, what was last um, discussed so that you know you don't go to an LP and ask the same questions, right? Though asking the same questions can be useful as well because uh, it shows you how much they have changed in the last six months. So, um, but yes, to some extent, um, it is about um, discipline. It, it is about uh, knowing what your LP wants and um, putting them in certain categories because um, just by yourself, you can't do that. Like, um, if I were to pick a list of um, tier one LPs for a new GP, I won't be able to do it just based on memory al alone. So the CRM plays uh, a part because you will be able to extract based on um, parameters you have set before, right? Um, based on um, notes, okay, this guy likes a certain sector and therefore you can pick up everyone with that. And of course, as you go through the names again, you do remember, hey, I remember this guy saying this. So it does help, yeah. Got and it. for those who are struggling, I would say they are actually probably at the point where everyone else in, you know, if you're at the fifth year mark, I think it's telling that if you look at most great companies, um, some companies tend to have um, staff who are there for less than five years and then staff who are there for more than 10 years. So what happened to the people between five to 10? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, the truth is everyone goes through that cycle. So in your fifth or sixth year, you start wondering, right? Do I bring value to the table? Do I, you know, am I doing this correctly? Am I ever going to move? Because there's always someone up there. So, so the truth is, I don't think it um, applies only to fundraisers. I think in almost every job, you, you encounter a sort of roadblock. So you need to decide if this is something you want to carry on. And if you want to, I, I would encourage you, um, push it on, go on, develop your own method of you know, getting to know what LPs want. Make yourself useful. <laughs> I mean, um, people remember you better if you value added to them, right? Whether, you know, whether it resulted in uh, real sales or it didn't, doesn't matter. You know, if the LP tells me, hey, you know, I'm looking for a research uh, paper on this. If you read anything on that, um, just send it over. You know, I rarely take this kind of um, request as a, okay, sure, I'll do it. But, you know, you never bother. I usually, you know, take five 
minutes to half an hour just searching through because I do see a lot of reports, right? If some of this can be useful, why not? It's just a click of the button, just sending over something. And usually it's useful because they don't have the sort of resources we have. Um, they don't get um, as much, um, you know, um, I don't know, as much exposure as we do. So sometimes what you think is, you know, easy peasy is not, yeah. Yeah, it could be the very basic ABC stuff, right? Yes. And you would think that it's not going to add any value, but just the gesture of it, yes. the fact that they may not have seen the article. Um, very useful advice there, Michelle. So, hey, listeners, if you're listening, <laughs> right, and that has been on the top of your mind, there is there is some very useful advice here. Um, as you know, we've so far we've listened to the importance of listening, right? So we need the we need the verse. So for those of you who are who are following the the Christian doctrine, then you can look at it. What was the the, the verse? James Saint chapter James, uh, one, uh, verse James nineteen. Chapter one, verse, verse nineteen. Verse nineteen. Everybody, all about listening. It's all it's all about speaking slowly, right? Um, hopefully, nobody gets angry in a in a, sell, <laughs> in, a in a fundraising pitch, but but that is the foundation. Right, and I, and I often say this to, to my guys in my team, so I, I say the most important part of a sales process is understanding the client's needs. Without that, you can forget about doing anything with anyone anyway. And I can see that that advice is coming through time and time again. Each question I've asked you, you've really emphasized what the client is looking for and making sure that it's done properly, right? So with, on that note, I would like to ask you this other burning question, which I'm sure is on the minds of everybody. Um, what is in at the moment, right? What, what are people looking for? What products are like in demand, given what's going on in the world? It's absolutely crazy, right? I mean, there's inflation, there's like the war you mentioned earlier. What's going on? And is there anything, do you see it changing? Or what's the status right now? Yeah. So there's a camp of LPs who believe that they should sit on cash. <laughs> Isn't that the advice we got never to do, right? <laughs> never hoard cash, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but they, for some of them, they do have some valid reasons. The truth is what they are experiencing is the public markets uh, being undervalued and private markets being overvalued. And therefore, they would have to um, you know, wait it out. They will have to wait for some sort of correction. Otherwise, they will have to take a more drastic um, sort of um, move, which is to sell down their private uh, market funds. And that's something that most people don't want to do. So which is why there's this camp of people who feel that they should wait and see. Whereas um, there is also another camp of people who feel that, no, I should still be investing, right? No matter how tough things are, I should still invest. I should still look at the VCs, the growth, the buyouts, because um, the truth is, um, you know, whatever I invest now could be lower in terms of valuation and that could do well in the next few years. Yeah. So there are different camps, but I would say uh, keep moving. <laughs> right. Has it ever happened before in your career where investors have started um, holding on to cash? Um, or is this the first experience you've had? No, I think in 2018 when the market crashed, um, when public markets crashed, I think that was also when um, LPs were sitting on cash. Um, I think even people were just hold, not spending as much, right? Because um, 2007, 2006 were great years, and then 2008 and nine. People were just being cautious about spending in general. So I, I believe, um, you know, all of that um, has happened. Yeah. 
So we're coming towards the end of this uh, podcast. I want to end this on a couple of more personal questions to you, right? You're, you're very humble, Michelle. <laughs> As are a lot of the guests that I've brought on here, I, I, I've, and the, the, this stigma that salespeople get is that they are, you know, all singing, all dancing, very loud, very aggressive, you know, very extroverted. But most of the people I've met are, aren't like that. And you certainly seem very grounded. Um, how how do you how have you how have you become like this? <laughs> if that's even a question. <laughs> there are a lot of situations in our lives where we don't need to carry a name card or a CV, so that helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it helps to keep you grounded because if you're at the restaurant, you're at lousy, you know, service. Um, you're not going to flash your name card and say, "Hey." <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you know, buck up, you know. So I I personally feel that um, the lesser you think about your name card or your CV, <laughs> maybe uh, um, the easier it is life is going to be. <laughs> you feel, um, I don't know. They when say that, they say that, don't they? They say that you're, you're, you should not value yourself based on the business card that you carry or, the, or your CV because no, once you've lost that, then you've lost everything. Nobody... There's been tons of people that work for big firms and then they, they go off and they're like the people don't even talk to them in conferences because they they only they people would only talk to them because they had the, the business card. Exactly. And you well, and hopefully through being so humble, there's uh, loads of friends that you know will keep in touch with you, right? And because they'll see the nice side of you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but the truth is, everyone's going to go through that one day because we are all going to retire, right? Yeah, <laughs> I cannot imagine working yeah. in my 90s, okay? Yeah, I, yeah. I have a lot of respect for Dr. Mahathir, but yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah. the life for me. <laughs> yeah, 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 so yeah. I, I think upon retirement, most of us will do that. And, you know, if, yeah, otherwise, I think um, go do some volunteer work. There are plenty of opportunities in Singapore. Yes. And I think. Sometimes we need that um, just to, you know, um, have a good feel of, um, you know, life around us. Yeah. Sometimes we get too caught up in our own world of, I don't know, closing deals, um, investments, that we, we lose perspective, right? Yeah. yeah. So how do you manage your own anxieties? Um, I mean, I guess I'm sure faith is very important. Do you pray a lot? Does that help you? Because life, life on the road, life when you're pitching and going out, deals and the pressure and, and everything else, most of us, whoever we are like in the industry, will, will know that this is a stressful job. So how do you maintain that? I think, um, I think on a daily basis, just um, being able to set aside time to, um, to pray and meditate helps. And, but the truth is, um, I also believe in giving my 100% and allowing God to give His 100%. Though um, I would say that sometimes the answer from God is no. <laughs> <laughs> so the truth is, um, with every prayer, you have to be prepared, right? Yes. That the answer could be yes, no, or wait. So if you're not prepared for a negative answer, then it's better not to pray. But <laughs> yes, no, yeah. no, 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 I understand. This is very interesting. Look, I think the listeners and the viewers have probably gained a lot from this. If any of them wanted to reach out to you, are, they, are you okay for them to sort of um, reach out to you? Is it a LinkedIn the best way to, to catch you? Is yes. it? Or, you know? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And if there's any GPs, maybe we can also point them your way and, and, and so on. And also to some of our family office network that is yes. listening because there's a lot of them at the moment that are calling us trying to set up in Singapore. and. Mm. Um, 
they're also tracking this. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Thank <laughs> is you there any question that I should have asked that I didn't? I always try and ask that. Is there anything you uh, want me to cover? No, or I anything you want to say? Last lot. words, perhaps? I can't think of much, but um, end of the day, spend your time on what is most important. And I think what is most important um, could be different to different people. Um, but end of the day, um, if you do not have your name card and your CV, who's going to listen to you? Who's going to be there for you? I think those are the people that you should spend more time with. It's a good start. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, then. Mm. Well, thank you very much to everybody for listening in. Uh, this is Ayaz Ahmed from the Fundraisers Podcast. Till next time.